Good morning. Well, it's almost New Year's, and so here we sit kind of looking at the past, looking at our past year and saying, all right, how do we do? Uh, then, we, uh, then we start to look forward and, you know, some of you are going, oh boy, New Year's resolutions, do I dare even begin to think about those? And uh, I was trying to figure out how to prepare a message um, kind of for that in-between week. You know, that wasn't a new resolutionist, you know what I mean? I don't even know if that's a word. But, um, but also to still continue to remember what Christmas was all about. And so as um, I knew this was coming, I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to start a series. I have no idea when it's going to end. Um, I mean, it will end in about 35 minutes today. But, um, but I was thinking there's kind of a process that I kind of want to go through. And so I titled this, Jesus, A Road Less Traveled. And really the idea behind it is to simply look at once Jesus was here, what did he do? What was the modeling he did in our lives or to show us through uh, scripture and through the way in which he lived his life that can then better help us become who we ought to be in Christ himself? And so uh, that's what I'm going to attempt to do. Well, as you know, there's leadership books everywhere. They're on the bestseller list all the time. Uh, every week, massive conferences that teach about leadership, and they are well attended. Small group meetings at work and amongst leaders in their workplaces that talk about leadership and their importance. I think for years, the model of leadership has kind of had these kinds of things in mind. The person must be assertive. They need to be a visionary type person, tough, no nonsense, my way or the highway. It had to do with, I think, these two words, action and change, really with the intent to make something better. But the bottom line is, you know, it might be better for a while, but in the end, it seemed like uh, it usually left the path of destruction behind it. In many ways, I think that's still kind of the way the world defaults to that type of leadership. And I think one of the things we've got to caution ourselves is, as a church, I think it's influenced the church and how we operate. But see, Jesus, he had a different way. He had a different style. And we called it servant leadership. And you're going, huh, brilliant, Dave. I've read about that. Well, some of you are thinking, well, that's not all that new. And I'm going to tell you, you're right. It's over 2,000 years old. Um, but books... The likes of Good to Great, um, authors like John Maxwell, television shows even like Undercover Boss, and coaches, uh, Hall of Fame coach uh, Tony Dungy, have begun, I think, to kind of move that needle, put it out in front of people a little bit in direction, and, and get it to where I think it's intended to be. That is God's way, which is modeled by Jesus Christ himself. Collins, in his book, Good to Great, says the great leaders usually display, listen to this, a mix of intense determination and profound humility. Sound like somebody we know? Hope so. Tony Dungy is a football coach that has been through it all. But one thing always remained the same for him, his desire to live the way Christ lived his life as a humble servant. He had a successful playing career in football, Super Bowl champion. But the funny thing is, he would say those are great accomplishments, but they are not the things that define him. I found this video of Tony talking about one of the coaches he learned this 
firsthand from when it deals with humility and leadership. I get asked about leadership a lot and what are the qualities you look for in a, in a great leader. And to me, the number one quality, and it might be surprising, but I think the number one quality is humility. Uh, my professional coach, Chuck Knoll, uh, was the best example of a leader that, that I've ever been around. And that was because he really didn't want the credit. He really didn't want to be out front. He wanted the team to do as well as it could do. And being around him as a player and as an assistant coach, I just really admired that. Everything was done for the good of the team, and he was not afraid to take a back seat. Even though we all knew he was the leader, there was no question he was in charge, he didn't feel like he had to be the most important person. And uh, I think that then transmitted down to everybody else. And our players, our team all felt that way, that winning was more important than being acknowledged as being in charge. And uh, that allowed other leaders to grow. But uh, being a, a leader and, and not being afraid to say, I made a mistake or it was my fault, uh, not always looking for the credit, but looking to build up other people and being humble, I think that's what goes into long-term success. Well, and as you look at Tony's life um, through a variety of places, books he's written, he's got a website called All Pro Dad. At com, and where that is, what he's talking about is he wants dads to be a part of his kids' lives, and so there's ways in which he's developing that. He's got some great videos on YouTube and on his website. Um, feel free to check that out, especially if you've got kids in the home. So what is true leadership? Well, according to the world, it's a lot of things. But to God, leadership is really much different. Today, we're going to kind of look back, and, and I call it the other side of leadership. We're going to look at it the way God intended it, in the way Jesus modeled it for us. I know that some of you may say, well, I'm not a leader. Um, I'm not good in front of people. Uh, I would rather follow a good leader. Well, the part that I hope you'll see this morning is that Jesus calls us to be leaders and followers, all at the same time. So what do I mean? Well, just before Jesus' ascension, he speaks to the disciples and gives them this final instruction, Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I really like that ending where he's saying, I'm with you. You're not going through this alone. You're not going to have to be the lone ranger in this process. I'm going to go with you and be with you. See, he's telling us to lead. He's telling us to go, not to wait for others. He's telling us we need to be the, doing our part in this. But at the same time, we're told to follow, be a follower by doing what Jesus showed us. Matthew 16, 24, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Or John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Imagine with me, you were an observer of Jesus. You got to walk from town to town with him as he talked with and taught his disciples along the road. You witnessed miracles and watched people's lives being changed 
instantly as he stopped for sinners and challenged the religious leaders. Well, what would you have maybe noticed? A man, fully God, I might say, that had purpose, that had compassion, and most importantly, had love. Well, how do we know this? Romans 5, 6 through 8 gives us a major clue to this. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Didn't die for himself. He died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates Again, notice, it's, it's demonstrates. It's not demonstrated, like it's in the past tense. This is still active. He continues to do this. Demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. See, Jesus isn't asking us to do something that, we weren't, that he wasn't willing to do himself. So let's look at this just a little more carefully. See, Jesus Christ, who had infinite power or has infinite power, set it aside for us so that we could be reconciled to him. God's plan could have been to come to earth, rule over everyone, demand we follow and serve him. God doesn't need us, as harsh as that may seem. But he chose us because of his great love for us. I can't even begin to understand that God who created all things, sustains all things, was willing to take on the very nature of a human and live a life as a servant. See, we've spent this last month celebrating the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We learned and we remembered the careful plan that God laid out before us so that we could be redeemed and brought into right relationship with a holy God by him sending his only son, his beloved son, to earth. Have you ever considered what God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, gave up for this to happen? Imagine the perfect relationship they shared in heaven and how that changed as a result of this plan. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good example and I don't know of a better one, of what true love really is. I remember when I had just finished eighth grade, and my friend Bobby and I celebrated by going to Star Wars, Return of the Jedi. We were really excited, and we, we got there early. We wanted to be sure we got a really good seat. We got our tickets, went into the theater, and, but it appeared like the trailers had already started. And that was okay, because we were excited. But not more than two minutes later, Spoiler alert, the Death Star blew up. At that moment, I realized I just saw the end of the movie. And I'm going to tell you I was disappointed. I knew the ending. So while I waited the next 30 minutes to watch the movie from the beginning, there was a part of me that was disappointed. I knew how it was going to end. Now in some things in life, it is good to know what the end result's going to be. I tell you this story to give you kind of a picture of how God had a plan. He knew what was going to happen in the end, but
but still was willing to go through it. Jesus knew he was the only one that could make things right. I think we can learn from this. When we have the end in mind, it can help us push through things. We never thought we could. It's why we set goals. It's why we practice. It's why we learn new skills. Because we know in the end it's going to pay off. Just, for us, just like for us as Christians, knowing that God wins in the end, I think should give us the confidence to continue on, no matter what our situations or circumstances are. Jesus was a humble servant. In Mark 10, 42 through 45, it says this, And Jesus called, to, called them to him, his disciples, and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. And then he ends it with this. For even the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. See, many of us seem to have the picture that someone that serves others is weak or inferior. But according to Jesus, that is the true measure of a person. When you serve someone, that means you're willing to relinquish your rights and look out for the needs of others ahead of your own. Just as a mother does for their child or a firefighter does to save somebody in a burning building. I want us to step back into the Old Testament and read about God's amazing plan to redeem us. When Jesus entered our world as a human, he was not surprised by what was happening. It didn't catch him off guard. It was foretold hundreds upon hundreds of years ago. This is the very rich passage of Scripture and reveals so many things about God and about Jesus. I wish I had a full message just to speak and unpack this passage, but I'm just going to highlight a few things. Isaiah 53, verses 1 and 2. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This is a prophecy of old, speaking of Jesus. And verse 2 tells us that Jesus was nothing special to look at. Okay, I'm not saying Jesus was ugly, okay? I'm saying the passage is implying that Jesus had nothing that physically attracted people to him. He was a normal Jewish man. And then verse 3, we pick it up. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 3 talks about this rejection by men. Jesus, the co-creator of all things, was not just unliked, he was despised. Despise in the Hebrew has the meaning of contempt or disdain towards someone that is vile. Think about that. And it's used twice, I think, to emphasize the point of how deep the rejection would be. Jesus, knowing all of this, still was willing to submit himself 
to this rejection. Why would Jesus and the Father go through with this? As I said earlier, because of their love for us. Jesus' desire was for all to know him. But he knew that most would reject him. He was deserted by even his own disciples because they didn't want to have to go through what Jesus was going through. And then verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, essentially our sin. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. It's talking about his death paid our, paid our price. He paid that. In verse 6, all, and he knew this, all, we, right here, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. See, God knew we were going to wander off and do our own thing. He knew we would be mired in our sin and have no real hope. However, once and for all, Jesus was going to have this heavy weight of sin placed on him and him alone. What we see here is that God will lay the sins of us all on his son, his beloved son, and it's going to cover every single person. Now, we'll move into the New Testament. So just go to the right a little bit in your Bible, and we're going to see what we can find there. This is a passage in Philippians 2 that, um, for some reason, as I was a student in high school, really stuck out to me. I always was one that I connected with, and I don't know, I mean, I, I know the content was there, but it just seemed like one that always, I was always going back to it. And I thank the Lord for that. It's also one that I use often in premarital counseling of couples. Uh, but probably because of just how straightforward it is. And, um, and, and I think because it just really doesn't leave a whole lot of room for interpreting. Um, the Apostle Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, is writing this to the church in Philippi, Philippi and to us as believers. Paul starts out in verses 1 and 2 and he's reminding us that our goal is to be one with God and one with one another, okay? But then he kind of, he, he, he shifts in verse 3 and 4, and he says, okay, this is how you're supposed to act. This is how you're supposed to behave. And it says this in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, there's that word again, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. It's about putting aside our own desires and looking for ways to value others. I am sure when the church heard these words, they sounded great. Putting them into action on a daily basis might be another thing. Because it might mean they might have to actually extend grace and mercy and forgiveness all the time. So it may start out strong. And everybody's like on board, let's do this. But I think Paul wants to make sure this is sustained over a long period of time. And so he gives us what I call the why. I don't know about you, but for me, to be committed to something, I need to know 
the why. I believe people do things, and I don't think I'm the only one, that believe that, you know, when you know the why, then you're willing to do it. But Paul, as I say here, plays the Jesus card. Once it's played, you know it. You, you no longer are able to argue. It's really just something you're going, okay, I got to do it. It says in, your, in verse 5, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Ugh. Okay, seriously, I got to be like Jesus? I got to act like him? Yeah. And he's saying, see, there it is. Your mindset should be the same as Christ Jesus. Jesus is our example. It's interesting the word mindset can also be translated as attitude. In the Greek, it's even a more active word, more like to seek or to strive for. So what would Jesus do? It's not just a saying, but it should be what keeps us focused, keeps us focused on the right things. Colossians 3, 1 and 2, Paul's stating this to the church in Colossae, and he says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So he's saying, I want you to, here's where you're supposed to look. This is where you're going. This is what I want you to pay attention to. And then he says it again. He says, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. He's not saying that uh, you can't do anything on earth, but what he's saying is the things here on earth will pass away. But the things above is what we need to be focused on, the things that are tr of true value. I love what Paul does in this passage. He starts with telling us how a disciple should act, right? Okay, in the first two verses. Then tells us what kind of attitude we should do it with. And then for the finale, he gives his closing argument by reminding the church and us of what Christ did by coming. Not as a king, but as a servant. In verses 6 through 8, who being in the very nature, okay, idea of in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature or form, okay, of a servant. There it is. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. He was willing to pay the ultimate price with his life. I know I've said it often, but Jesus is our example and we need to have his same mindset, the same attitude that he had, that he lived. I remember when Tammy and I were in our premarital counseling, our pastor told us this, the key to a great marriage is one, keep God the highest priority. Two, Try to outserve your spouse in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, essentially, it was saying, look out for the needs of your spouse ahead of your own. If you both serve each other as Christ served the church, your depth of love and intimacy will grow. His advice and counsel served us well as we're celebrating our 25th anniversary this next week. It's, it's all about being a servant. A friend of mine wrote this. She said, we cannot progress to deeper and greater things with God until we have started down the path of humility and learned to serve. Being a servant is the starting point for those who desire to be used greatly by God. And it is the very mark of those 
close to God. In John 13, we remember the story of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. A job reserved for slaves, uh, not for the host or the owner of the home. He was willing to go to the cross. He was willing to stand falsely accused um, and not even fight back. He reached out to the marginalized in society and spent time with them. See, Jesus has set before us the example. He lived it out while he was here on earth. And we need to live like him. Okay, I'm just going to say it's easier said than done. I know for me, it's really easy to put my wants and needs ahead of others. I know I shouldn't, but I do. I need to first know my why. Why should I serve like Christ? When I continue each day to realize the depth of his love for me, his willingness to come to earth, live a sinless life, and be crucified for my sin, and then rose again? Well, because of his deep love for me, it helps me to serve out of, you know, serve not out of duty or because I have to, but to bring him the most glory I can. It's all about him and not about me. I need to seek God's glory. In John 7, 18, Jesus says, whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. So the questions I have to ask myself all the time is this. Is God getting the glory or am I seeking the glory? I have to check my selfish motives all the time. I remember the story about a young CEO. He had a failing business and he needed to change some things or else the company was just not going to survive. And after reading some books and articles, he decided to try out this servant leadership thing. This young CEO implemented a plan and even changed his schedule to go and be amongst the people on a regular basis. He was on the manufacturing line. He was in the HR department, the shipping department, customer service. He showed appreciation and even listened to their concerns and even some of their personal issues the workers had. The CEO was amazed at how quickly things began to change. There was less sick days being used, less complaints, more production, and, and a more friendly environment. New ideas and feedback were given to help the business even grow bigger and stronger. The CEO originally did it as a way to save his business and was willing to fake it and act like a servant to help his personal bottom line. His motives were not pure at all. But in the end, he learned that he was much happier and even became more generous. He took the focus off himself and let everyone be a part of the success and the part of the process. In turn, it changed his life and his business. See, we're going to never really know somebody's motives, true motives. And I don't know. I don't, I don't think that's all that important, really. What matters is we are serving God with all our heart with all our mind, soul, and strength. The beauty, beautiful thing about being a servant is it's something that anyone, no matter their gender, their race, their socioeconomic status, or even religion, that can do, they can do it. So how do I have this mindset to be a servant leader and a committed follower of Jesus? Well, I'm going to tell you, it starts with the Holy Spirit. 
to speak to you and to guide you. We can't live our lives in our own power. It takes the Holy Spirit and other believers around us. I love the song by Jeremy Camp called Same Power. It's a song that reminds us that the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is the same power that lives in us. I need to keep reminding myself of this. i got to keep reminding myself that when I placed my faith in Jesus and remember what he did for me on the cross, that I received the Holy Spirit in my life and I need to live in his power, the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, it's good stuff. See, the Holy Spirit guides us, John 16. Holy Spirit teaches us. It illumines us and reveals things to us, 1 Corinthians 2. It empowers us, 2 Timothy 1. The Holy Spirit is the one that allows us to serve humbly and with intense determination to bring glory to God. I need to constantly pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help me have the mindset or the attitude of Christ and to give me wisdom and strength to to follow through. I'll be honest, it's a daily process. And many times I fail. But my goal is to keep moving forward. And when I fall, I need to get back up. And I need to ask the Holy Spirit for help. All right, so what now? I've talked about this. Well, here's a couple things that have helped me. I don't know if they'll help you, but maybe. One, don't wait to be asked to serve. Take the initiative to serve. Some of you, this comes naturally. You have the love language of acts of service. Others of you, it takes some work. I know for me, it's hard to choose to serve if there are other important things going on. Those of you that have young families, your primary focus is your home and children. But just serving your family is not what God had in mind. We are to serve, even if it's in just little ways, like shoveling an elderly neighbor's driveway or sidewalk or greeting one one Sunday a month to make others feel welcome. We had a football player on our team that I had the privilege of coaching last season. And um, he would always be one of the last ones out of the locker room. And I really never understood why. And then I later found out he would stay later than almost all the players and clean the locker room. Never asked by a coach to do it. No players did it other than him. What was interesting, though, is there were even times where he would stay even a little bit longer and he would clean the visitor's locker room. Didn't ask for recognition. Didn't even probably assume anybody was really paying attention. But I'm going to tell you, I know a lot more about what makes up that player than I do a lot of the other players because of the way in which he served others. See, when we serve with the right attitude and the mindset, we tend to, I think, enjoy it more too. Serving others was Jesus' heart. See, he chose to serve, not to be served. So when there's something you can step into at work, at school, in your neighborhood, or at church, we need to do it. Take the initiative. Don't wait to be asked. Step up and start serving. Another thing that's helped me is kind of keep me focused is pray and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal ways I can serve others today. One of the things we know is important is to pray. We all know that. But how often do we pray in the morning or on our way to school or work 
for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to places to simply serve and care for others. There's something about us really asking him that I believe helps us see things in our normal day that we might have missed had we not prayed. I think the Holy Spirit helps change our mindset. I think most of us, if someone dropped a folder of papers um, and you were nearby, you'd probably just go by and be ha- happily pick them up with them. But what about the break room? When the counter is dirty and the table is a mess, do you take the 30 seconds to clean it up? We should. When there's uh, snow on the sidewalk and there's a shovel nearby, do we quickly grab it and make a path? Or do we go, God, I can't believe they don't have this shoveled for me. But think about the person who's at a fast food restaurant. You've just got done eating. Are you willing to clean the table, even the floor? so that they can have a clear table, you're going, well, wait, they have employees for that. Yeah, they do, but they don't have enough to cover it all. But all I know is if I can find a clean table to sit at a restaurant, it's a pretty nice thing. So who have I really served? What, mo- what have I modeled even to my children or to those around me? I didn't have to do it. I just chose to do it. These are just a few practical ways. However, I don't want you to forget that no matter big or small, take the time to serve others multiple times a day. I think you'll be amazed at how great it makes you feel. And the cool part is, you've modeled Jesus. And you may even open a door with others when they ask you, why are you serving like that? And lastly, Memorize the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and 23 and be them. I like to ask the question, <laughs> how fruity are you? I know. I remember having a student in my previous church. <laughs> oh, man. That was like, what do you call him? The, maybe not to his face. Um, so it might have been gossip. But um, he's a negative Nelly, a curmudgeon, a glass half empty, pessimist. Okay? I mean, those would be words that would describe him to a T. The crazy part is he knew Scripture really well. But the way he lived his life, most people didn't even want to be around him. He'd be the guy that would come to this lively party and within 15 minutes would have sucked the entire life out of it. I remember talking to my intern and he had been working with this young man and he finally had had enough. He said, this is just not right. If he calls himself a Christian, then he needs to act like a Christian. I said, well, that would be great. But what do you think you should do? Well, he said, I'm going to meet with him, and I'm going to go through the fruit of the Spirit with him. I will talk through each one of them and ask him how he rates himself. I thought, well, hey, that's a pretty good plan. So, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there's no law. He did meet with them, and he was able to discuss these things. But did he change that day? No. But did he begin to change slowly? Yeah. I think what helped this young man was giving him some specific things as a target of how his behavior should look. 
I remember asking the student in a nice but direct way, when people are around you, are they attracted to Christ because of the way you live your life? Or are they pushed away from Christ? See, when we live in the Spirit, I believe people naturally ask questions and even are attracted to it because it's so foreign to this world. The Apostle Paul reminded, reminded the churches of these things. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Guys, we are to serve. God will do the reaping. Or Colossians 3, 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Essentially, we are doing things for God's glory, not for our own. Paul concludes that Philippians 2 chapter um, with this verse in verse 13. It's fitting. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God wants to use us to fulfill his purpose. How do we do that? By being like him. By being a humble servant.